look at how the ecosystem works, typically founders will come in, they will go through their journey, they realize how hard it is, and they will tend to invest in other founders, even as they're going through their own experience because they understand. And they typically always come back as an investor in some shape, form, or fashion. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Liana Barba, Managing Director in Technology and Disruptive Commerce at J.P. Morgan, and Monica Wheat, Managing Director of Techstars Detroit. Liana and Monica talked about their career ambitions, specifically their commitment to empowering diverse entrepreneurs. They shared insights about how founders can fuel their own ambition, and they encouraged investors to get more proximate to a diverse group of founders. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Liana and Monica, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks for inviting us. Absolutely. Thank you. I'd love to have you both start with telling us a little bit about yourselves so the audience knows something about you. Leona, let's start with you. I got interested in financial services by happenstance. I thought that I was going to be the next Claire Hustable. I grew up watching The Cosby Show, and I thought for sure I wanted to be this powerful corporate attorney. And as I got older and went to college... I realized that to be a corporate lawyer, it takes a lot of skill set, a lot of understanding of both business concepts as well as law. And I started initially, as I thought about it, I was like, well, what if I get bored with law? I should have a backup plan. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to really make business my major, finance and accounting. I was a little major in finance accounting. I'm going to make that my major and that's going to be my focus. And then I'll go to law school. And that way, if I get bored with law, I can always fall back on my business degree. And that was the plan. When I graduated from college, I was like, well, I don't want to go work in law right away. Let me just work for a bank for a little bit and just see how I like it. And then I realized when working with the bank and starting to work with lawyers that their lives are not that interesting and as much fun. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to stick with this banking gig. And so that's kind of how I fell into business. Monica, what about you? For me in school, I was really good at math and science. And so everyone said, you're good at math and science. You have to be an engineer or you have to be a doctor. You don't have a choice. Those are your things. So I chose engineering, had no clue what that really meant. Went to school at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor to be an engineer and honestly didn't like it that much. (laughs) I liked the fact that it was zeros and ones. It worked or it didn't work, that kind of thing. Good, bad, or indifferent. I had to work my way through school. So I had the opportunity to be very early on with several companies doing engineering work all over the world. I ended up with GM and Ford, agency side, in-house, outhouse, or whatever. But I was with GM overseas in Shanghai. And that's where I first got an assignment where they made me in charge of talking to startups and seeing if they would be good fits for partnerships down the line with GM. Kind of just fell in love from there. I was there in 2008 when they went under. And one of those downturns, I jumped ship to the venture capital side. And I've kind of been here ever since. First starting out doing some investing on my own, then partnering with several groups, and then ending up with Techstars. Launched my own group, partnered with Techstars with that, and then became an employee about two years ago. And so, Monica, what was it about Techstars that drew you to that company and what it was doing? We were in Detroit, which wasn't seen as a tech and innovation hub at the time. Spent a lot of time in San Francisco and would try to immediately copy and paste everything that was in San Francisco and bring it back to Detroit. That didn't work. It took a couple iterations for me to see that that didn't work. And so I became obsessed with this thought of what does it take to build an ecosystem? What does it take to make these companies successful? Because those early investments that I did on my own, they didn't have the ecosystem for them to be successful. 
And that's where Techstars came in. I worked with a ton of different groups, but Techstars was one of the few that not only just came in and said, here's a check and here's some support and some resources, but they kept coming back and they kept asking the questions like, what do you need? And it gave us the courage, at least me and a lot of the work that I was doing in those early days, to really think about Detroit and some of these other emerging markets shaping themselves versus trying to copy and paste what was in Silicon Valley. And that's what has worked for a lot of these partnerships that I've been in. I really love that. And we've done a lot of work as a firm in Detroit. So we know there's a lot of uniqueness there relative to other markets. But the fact that you were trying to build that based on its own culture, people, talent, I think is so important. We don't need another Silicon Valley, New York or other corridor, right? We need a Detroit the way it's meant to be. Let's stick on the topic of accelerators and everything that they can really do to help a market. Why is that particular ecosystem so important to places like Detroit? One of the things that we talked about a lot, when you think about innovation and you think about people starting companies and scaling these companies, so much of it is the network that is surrounding them. So much of it is the resources that they have access to. And that's what made Silicon Valley and some of the coastal markets supercharged in that area. They had a concentration and a density of people who were talking about this at every table, at every coffee shop, all that kind of thing. And they had a network. It was common, the culture of failure, which is really huge in the innovation space, but hard to share and build, especially in the emerging markets that just generally think of culture of success as the only way to go. The culture of failure is what you need to do innovation. You have to be okay with it. They support one another. They can give each other interim jobs, even if it doesn't work out, or they can help each other through tight spots. Emerging markets, it is super, super key that they have strong ecosystems. Effective ecosystems can solve for 90% of the problems that most startups have. And so in every emerging market that I've worked in, and I do a lot in what I call Michigan and Miami, the third coast, like that middle part of the country that has people, has density, but just doesn't have that culture of innovation, those folks really rely on effective ecosystems. And that's where accelerators come in. So, Liana, I want to talk to you about the work you see in various markets, too. And how would you categorize what you try to do with different clients and their companies, no matter where they're based, in terms of taking their culture and their environment into account? I think it goes back to something Monica was saying around it's the network. To be successful in venture and within the tech ecosystem, you have to have a strong network, which is why for many founders, diverse founders, female founders, they've traditionally been locked out of those markets, locked out of those rooms, right? Which is why when you look at venture funding for women, it's less than 2% in a given year, typically. For Black women, it's less than 0.2% in a given year. And so the work that I do as a market manager, I run a team of bankers at JP Morgan, which focuses on covering companies from seed stage to exit, but making sure that we are intentional around ensuring that diverse and female founders and veteran-owned business founders, that they have a voice at the table within JP Morgan. Ensuring that if we're hosting an event or we're bringing funders and founders together, that they're in those rooms with those funders and founders. And that funders that are diverse, right? We have a lot of diverse emerging, what they call emerging diverse managers. We've seen an increase in the number of those diverse focused funds over the last couple of years, making sure that they're in a room with potential opportunities for investment. And so bringing those networks together. And I know that I sit in a very special place and intersection at JP Morgan, where the power of our network can be amplified if we use it to bring those parties together. And it's part of the reason that I love the work that we're doing with Techstars. And I think about something Monica was saying, we look at the conversations that are had in Silicon Valley, right? Techstars initially, it didn't start in the Valley, right? It started out in Denver because the view is that there is opportunity and talent and innovation all over the U.S. It is not unique to Silicon Valley. 
And I think that that is what I bring to the table and my bankers as we work here together at JP Morgan is that we want to make sure that those founders in other places and other markets, they have the opportunity to amplify and that they get the access and the power of the JP Morgan network. So I really enjoy the Techstars relationship as well. We are doing a pre-accelerator with the company to put cohorts of women through them in different markets. Can you talk about how the JP Morgan and Techstars collaboration really came together in the beginning and why it was that both sides really found interest in working together? It was the summer of 2020, a couple of weeks after the murder of George Floyd. Techstars reached out to me, brought an idea to us to say, we love the work that JP Morgan was already doing. From a DEI perspective, we were also making inroads within the innovation economy and working to become the premier financial services institution to the innovation economy. And they asked, could we think and work together on a way for us to do more to increase diversity in the ecosystem? After the George Floyd murder, there was a lot of discussion broadly across the ecosystem about the lack of diversity in terms of fund managers and investors that were making decisions, the lack of diversity in the founders that were receiving the investments. What were the ways that we can increase it? And there was a lot of talk at the time about different ways that investors could be more intentional and focused in terms of the things they were doing and founders could be more intentional about who they took investments from. And one of the things, and I'll give David Cohen credit, was he said, when you look at how the ecosystem works, typically founders will come in, they will go through their journey, they realize how hard it is, and they will tend to invest in other founders, even as they're going through their own experience, because they understand. But they will come back into the ecosystem, and they typically always come back as an investor in some shape, form, or fashion, whether they started their own fund, they invest in other funds, or they just continue to be an angel investor, whatever that is. And the ecosystem is circular in that aspect. And really, it is the foundation of venture capital is founders investing in other founders. And he said, in order for us to create a more diverse investor group, we need more diverse founders. We need that pipeline and that funnel. And if we can create that, we are intentionally creating the pipeline for more diverse investors, which will then hopefully get more diverse founders. It's a cycle. As I sit and I think about it and I look at the founders that I work with, regardless of background or gender, they all invest in other founders, despite where they are in their journey, some later than others, some earlier, but they all invest back in their founders. And so I think from that perspective, that collaboration, that idea was like, okay, how do we get more diverse founders into the ecosystem? And that is where the power of Techstars Accelerator Program becomes very attractive as an opportunity to scale and bring in these diverse founders, give them the skill set, and then you couple it with the power of JP Morgan and our network and our resources, and you bring that to the table. Founders that are diverse or women, they tend to lack two things. It's lack of access to capital. Through the Accelerator Program, you do get capital. Obviously, you do give up some equity for that capital. And the second thing they lack is access to network. And that is what Techstars brings with such a strong alumni presence of over 3,000 companies that have graduated. And that's what JP Morgan brings with all of our clients across this firm. It's so interesting to hear you talk about founders as investing in other companies. The reason I like that is when I think of the VC landscape and how male-dominated it really is, the first inclination many of us have is to just train more women to be investors, to get them early out of school, to put them through programs, but also training them in entrepreneurship is another way to go, as you're pointing out. And they go on to start companies, even if they fail, for them to become investors down the road is really important. And I think we do see so many founders who are very successful with their companies turn into the VCs later on. So that is great to hear. 
Monica, as you work with founders in the local markets, what are you typically looking for when you're trying to evaluate somebody themselves and or their company and ideas? It varies from person to person, to be honest. For me, I'm what they call, quote unquote, a gut investor. I have some rubrics and things like that, but it's honed off of having built, I think at this point, a little bit over a dozen accelerators of different levels and sizes and shapes and had thousands of entrepreneurs going through my own programs and those of Techstars that I've been a part of. One of the things I like is that people who can tell their stories very clearly, when I see that and they can articulate, my thought is always, so investing is a team sport, especially venture capital. And so I'm always thinking, can I sell this? So when they're telling me this story and they're telling me their idea to change the world, are they credible? Do they look like what they're talking about is the reality of the situation? Can add more seasoning around that once I learn more about them. But so much of it is, can they tell the story really well of this problem that they found, that they're super passionate about solving, that they know the market for and can prove that they know the market for, and that they have a plan on how it can scale? And so if we can have that conversation in an initial meeting, then we can jump into a deeper meeting. And in the deeper meetings, we obviously we're looking at their financials. We're looking at doing the reference checks and all that, that kind of stuff. I have a mixture of folks in my portfolios that are people who are early stage disruptors, those who are well beyond when some other folks know that they can come in, but I've seen it. So I've seen what works and I've seen where people have taken just the littlest idea. And I look for those same markers and see if we can replicate that. And again, see, can we sell that? Can we convince someone that what they have is the right thing? And usually that comes through numbers, through market, through testing, through traction. When we have those things all lined up and you get more check marks, then you know that you have a winner, somebody that it could be investable or it could be fundable, can take the conversation from there. So do you see founders who have really good ideas and you think might be onto something, but they can't convey that in their story? You see a hard time with them moving ahead and getting traction ultimately with investors? Especially in underrepresented communities for the reason that they just don't speak the language. Some of the smartest people in the world, that's why I love this space. I just get a chance to be around some of the smartest people in the world, but they've just not spoken, I call it the language of venture. They're not used to building concise statements and bringing those as part of the way that they engage with folks who might be potential investors or potential folks on their team. Whether it's a 30 second elevator pitch or if it's a full three minutes with slides, they've never done either and or had someone coach them to do either with some skill and some intent that a specific conversion that we're hoping to get on the back end. And those are folks, I think, that could be good candidates for an accelerator as much as folks who have an idea but know what resources they need and just don't have them. There are other folks who have amazing ideas and don't know what resources they need. Both sides are good candidates for accelerators and for programs like this. Liana, when you were starting to work with women and diverse founders, what drew you to some of their stories and the things that they were trying to create? I think you will find this with many investors as well. It's how do I relate to the problem they're solving? I'll use as an example, I've worked with a founder who has a digital health platform that provides midwives, nurses, and doulas on demand via text. And as a woman of color, and when you look at the mortality rates here in the U.S., you would think we were a third world country where our rates are. This is a platform that will answer those questions and take your concerns seriously in terms of this doesn't feel right. Kind of help teach you and help you advocate for yourself. It's supposed to be one of the most joyous times, but also can be one of the most scariest times for a woman if she gives birth. Or if she loses and has a miscarriage, the medical system will kind of just leave you and say, okay, you know, really sorry. You had this, you're dealing with a lot of emotions and feelings and trying to work through that. That resonates with me as a woman of color as a woman who has lost her cousin immediately after giving birth. Another client I work with where they have a software platform that does rent reporting. In underserved communities, typically 
people are renters. And the fact that in this country, paying your rent on time does not get reported to the credit bureaus prevents you from getting a higher credit score, which then hurts your ability to eventually achieve the American dream of homeownership. It impacts your ability to get inexpensive car insurance. The problems that they're solving, they resonate with me. I understand why they're solving those problems. No different than I can also understand why someone would create a platform that allows people to buy vintage or unique items. That resonates with me too as a consumer. But because of the lens that I sit as a Black and Latina woman, I understand what they're solving. Either I have been impacted or I know people that have. And it is that diverse lens that in which I see that's how I can relate to it. It's that relatability that's so important, innovation and understanding why people are solving the problems that they're solving. I'd love to really focus on this question of relatability because we're going to have to get more investors to relate to diverse founders and quickly because the numbers aren't changing. It's still way below 3% in terms of the venture capital that women raise and Black women even less. What is it going to take? We also don't have very many women and diverse check writers at these VC funds. So how can we try to get those who are there now to relate more to these companies? Or else I fear we're going to have a very long time between seeing more of that VC funding really increase. Each of you, I'd love to know, like, what do you think we can do to improve that relatability factor or to get proximate between these two communities? I think one of the things that is very commonly known is that venture capital, investments, innovation, it is a relationship-based business because we have to take a lot of bets on people and our feelings about people especially in my early days, was me being the only female on a panel of people deciding about investment. Part of the comments are being given is like, hey, this kid reminds me of myself when I was young, so let's take a swing on him. And because it is a gut business, it works all the way up until the point where you realize that the kids that are women and the kids that are black and brown will never get that swing or that benefit of doubt given to them. Getting an investment from an investor or bringing on a co-founder is about someone that you want to be in business with for 10 years. And they always say the same thing. Do you want to have a beer with this person? That kind of thing. That's the litmus test that you're supposed to immediately get a check mark on if you're a good person or you're a good possible person to have a conversation with. From my very earliest days, that was something that counted me out in a lot of spaces and places because I don't drink beer. That's just not my thing. Immediately, if they're like, do you want to get a beer with her? Well, I've never had a beer with her. I don't know. That's a thing that holds people up. So what we talk about a lot is like, it's proximity. It's about getting people comfortable with people who come from different spaces and places than themselves and trying to understand their point of view and trying to understand how to relate to them as people, even if they're not someone that you might necessarily want to go get a beer with. Maybe there's other ways that you can figure out to relate. And most of the folks when we're doing these kind of conversations in their head, they run through a reel in their head and they're going, wait a minute, I'm not an evil person. I've never purposely excluded somebody because they were a woman or because they were an underrepresented founder. Yeah, but you also have to be very intentional about the fact that you're including them. You have to be very intentional about the fact that you're making an environment that's not just for gamers and 18 to 22 year olds, that it is for folks who are different ages and different ranges that are coming from different backgrounds and trying to find the common ground with those folks too, because there's ideals in there. And one of the things I always say is that the space of investing in women and investing in underrepresented founders is the biggest opportunity in investment to date. Because this is untapped markets that folks just really haven't had access to. And the folks that are building in these spaces haven't had access to these markets. I think another or an additional way to continue to push this agenda is I always say follow the money. And so at the end of the day, the investors, they're the check writers, but there's somebody writing them a check called LPs. The onus is on the LP. They need to require the people that they are writing checks to, to have a lens that incorporates broad views. 
that not all investments and all the people you're investing in should look exactly like you or only solve problems for certain types of people. As I always say, when people talk about diverse fund managers, for example, they're like, well, there are diverse fund managers you can go to. Diverse fund managers do not have the luxury of only investing in diverse founders. Very few have that luxury because they need to hit returns that are akin to their others. So they need to be able to invest in a very broad aperture of investments. And so as a result, they need to be able to look at everything. Now, they will tend to lean to more diverse founders just because of the lens in which in the problems that they can relate to that are being solved. People want to say, well, you know, diverse founders can go to diverse fund managers. That is not the answer whatsoever. And again, not all of them, like I said, have the luxury. There are definitely some that this is their work and they are committed to diversifying the ecosystem and providing opportunities for diverse and underrepresented founders. And that is incredible, but not all of them have that luxury. It's just important to go back to the LPs and say, when you look at the funds that you're investing in, do you have women on your board? Do you have diverse people on your board? Do you have diverse investors making decisions? Are there diverse people on your investment committee? really holding these fund managers and the GPs accountable to the LPs. And I think the beauty of what Techstars is doing with this $80 million investment that is powered by JP Morgan is they are using the fund structure to show and to amplify that investing in diversity is not charity. It is real dollars. It is good returns. And hopefully by continuing to see that performance, it will create a fear of missing out from others, a little bit of FOMO for other investors like, okay, man, I'm going to miss out on some great opportunities for excellent return. That's another way I think that when we think about how do we move the needle here, follow the money trail. So here's a topic we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, which is ambition and particularly ambition when it comes to women. So I'm curious, when you think about the founders in your networks, how is ambition showing up for them? How would you describe the level of their ambition and what it is that women are ambitious for? Monica, let's start with you. I always say that ambition is like that self-driven motor inside of you that kind of pushes you to achieve and push where people say that you're not supposed to be. What I'm seeing in women and especially women founders across the board now is they, they know the numbers are low and their thought process is beyond can I get venture, but it really is about their stake and their chance to raise a multi-million dollar, if not billion dollar company. When I think of ambition, I think of the women who are painstakingly pulling together all the details that it takes to execute it and like asking a million questions, coming at it day and night, toe-to-toe with all the folks that are the naysayers about what are their chances. When I first started in this space, I talked to a whole bunch of people, said, I want to be a VC. I really love what this space is. It's exciting to me. I want to do it. Friends, good friends of mine who are in the VC space, they basically said, VCs don't look like you. And it's going to be very difficult because it's not usually women. It's not usually people of color. It's going to be difficult for you to come into this small, exclusive group that doesn't really open itself up. And when I see women now, I think that they're beyond ambitious of changing what you think who's going to be able to give the money away, who's going to be able to deploy capital in different spaces and places. They're employing ambition in every single aspect. It's not just being a founder. They want to be the LPs. They want to be the advisors. They want to be the mentors. They want to be all the pieces. And when I'm seeing that, it's very, for lack of a better term, it's very heartwarming because it's a vet paid that a lot of money has been put behind. So it's something good to see. So glad you just plowed forward with your own ambition. Who did you find that helped you do that? How did you take that input of, well, VCs don't look like you and just go for it anyway? Because they told me I couldn't. (laughs) They kind of shouldn't have told me I couldn't, but pretty much that was part of it. And the other part of it was I didn't find any place that I was happier. So I was like, this is what makes me happy. I'm going to go to the place that makes me happy. 
I had a lot of mentors and folks who were willing to put in a good word, who were willing to listen, who were willing to give me, quote unquote, a chance or levers and access and resources. That was given to me, which is why I've been so passionate about being a part of the initiatives that do it for other folks, because that was given to me in the early days when everyone was like, how dare you think that this is where you can go? <laughs> it was that. It was a lot of folks who spent a lot of time saying, honestly, it wasn't that many women because there weren't that many women, but there were some folks who were very open to, why not you? Liana, what about you? Even when I think about myself, do I think I'm ambitious? I'm driven. And so I guess when I think of ambition, it's just, it's about being driven and being focused. The women that I've surrounded myself with, the women I've grown up with, the women that I get to call colleagues, they are driven and they are focused. No task too big or small, they execute both with the same drive and focus. And that's really what I think about when I think about ambition. What continues to drive me and what makes me ambitious is a respect of the old to whom much is given, much is expected. And when I think about all the years that I spent in investment banking and now being in commercial banking, a part of it is when I just worked with really great people and I had really great women role models who showed me that there was a path because it kind of goes back to my Clara Huxtable, right? To circle back, you believe what you can see which is why representation is just so important. And that was a driven, focused woman on television. And so I've been drawn to that and I've had that in my career here at the firm. But I also know that it is important for me now as I've become senior to be that representation. And so if I walk away and leave, that's one less Black, Latina, MD at the table that they can see. There is a requirement of me not that I have to stay at J.P. Morgan or anywhere, but there's a require of me, a responsibility that I have to the collective to be here, to be able to pull people along, to bring them along on this journey. And it's imperative that I'm at this table and in the room so I can talk and advocate for diverse founders, whether they're diverse women, veteran owned, there is someone in the room to advocate for them. I take that responsibility really serious. And I think that is a part of my focus and my drive. And I guess that really drives my ambition. Well, thank you both. I mean, the fact that you're both in the room fighting for other women and diverse founders and investors is just tremendous. And I really appreciate everything you do. And I'm really so proud to be a part of this effort. What do each of you hope to see in 2023 when it comes to more great ideas from women and diverse founders? And maybe do you have any specific sectors that you're really interested in? For me, I'm really bullish on the B2B space, especially where it comes to plays in analytics and plays in prop tech, mobility, autonomy, things like that. Definitely want to see more women in all of those spaces. It's one of the things that I think plagued some of these markets and especially Detroit early on is because venture in that space was mostly corporate venture because it was like, can you sell your multi-million dollar vehicle idea to GM or Ford? Where it's usually people who've been in business for 20, 30 years, which already predates and there were more women in the space. Now they've changed the game on what mobility is. They've changed the game on what prop tech is and what it does. So many more things are accessible. So many more tools are accessible. And so I really want to see more women get in there and think about things that people don't think about, about how women own cars differently, women bank differently, about how people who run families and are looking at fintech and fintech tools that differently, how they're educated differently. Super excited to see folks just take charge more. Women in innovation and tech, sometimes they get relegated in spaces that I invest in as well, but they get relegated to things always in education or health. And there's nothing wrong in those two spaces because 
those are needed spaces. But I'd love to see them in more of the middle too, more of the spaces where the quote unquote, the boys traditionally play. I'd love to see more of that in 2023. I think for me, it's a couple of different areas. I think some more work related, like obviously I live and work in New York. And so the continued increase of fintechs and how more and more companies will look to monetize payment streams. I think that's going to be really interesting, especially for from a business perspective. From a personal perspective, I'm interested outside of what's going on in crypto. I'm interested in the growth of the metaverse in terms of how do you use it from a consumer D2C perspective, given what we continue to see in the consumer space. Obviously, it has been the first sector that has been impacted as market volatility has increased. So I want to see how the metaverse how can some of the ideas around the metaverse and what it means, how does that change? And two, what people say is unique about the metaverse and Web3, and Monica will know better than me, but is it truly an opportunity to have diversity very early on in this next wave of technology and innovation is what people proclaim, right? Is that really true? I want to spend some time learning and understanding if that's the case. And so I think I'm excited to see more of that in 2023. I do too. I'm looking forward to that. I hope women are represented in all of these innovation sectors going forward. We will definitely try to do our part to make sure they're there, as I know both of you will. So thank you both for being on this podcast. I think we could talk for so many more hours about the great trends you're seeing and the great work we're doing together. So we're going to take it away from here. And thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Monica and Liana. It is so inspiring to hear the work that they do every day to support women and diverse founders on their entrepreneurial journey. I really admire their intention to bring more diversity to entrepreneurship and to venture capital. And I love the responsibility that they both feel to build the space for others like them. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.